Well, if you have a Bible handy, why don't you turn to Exodus chapter 20 again. As Andy said, we're going through a little mini-series, slowing down really in the Ten Commandments as we walk through a bigger series in the book of Exodus. So we're on commandment number 10 today, and that is Exodus chapter 20. As has been our practice, we'll read the first two verses of that chapter, and then verse 17. And uh, before we do that, let us uh, pray once more. Our Father, uh, we read in Psalm 138 that you have exalted above all things your name and your words. May we, in the reading and in the preaching and the listening to this word uh, concerning your glorious name and your glorious truth, uh, exalt you in the process. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So Exodus 20, 1 and 2, first of all. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then over to verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Amen. This is God's word. Well, one day, a man in a crowd shouted out a complaint. He was asking Jesus for justice. It's in Luke 12. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, he said. Now, Reading between the lines, it sounds like one of those kind of sorry situations where families are torn apart over money left to them in a parent's will. This man wants his fair share. But while this man was seemingly asking for justice, Jesus heard only covetousness. As Luke 12, 15 says, he says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Greed could easily be translated as covetousness as it is in other translations. And then he said, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Which is interesting because Jesus at that point didn't say, oh, be fair, you know, share and share alike, be nice. He just said, be warned because there is an even greater threat to your happiness to guard against, and it's called covetousness. Life is not about having stuff. It's about something way more valuable than whatever that is. Now I wonder, could he say the same of the things that we want? Is there something even dangerous, sinister, hidden in the things that we talk about or wish for. Think about it. If I see a BMW M8 series driving by and I go, look at that. That is what I regularly do when I see one of these, as my children will testify. Now, I could call it an appreciation of beauty and design. And it might be, but as I sit down in the front seat of my Volkswagen Sharan and moan about the state of it, thinking about what it would be like to drive that baby, then I hear Jesus say, be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. 
Or what about when you're out for dinner with some friends and your friend's husband seems to be much more interested in his wife than your husband is in you? You know, later you find yourself talking with your husband about it. Oh, wasn't Jimmy lovely? He's such a nice man. But if Jesus was sat at your table with you, hearing you express your appreciation of a good husband, you might well hear him say, be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. And I guess we could spend the rest of our service taking turns to stand up and shout out our complaints and many would disclose covetous longings or desires and many would expose underlying discontent. We might stand up and call out our wishes and many would actually reveal a borderline resentment of our neighbor and a low-grade bitterness toward God. But that can't be. Not for God's people. And we've said throughout the Ten Commandments, throughout the series, that God's design in the Ten Commandments is to help us love Him with all we've got and love our neighbor as ourselves. Life consists in that, brothers and sisters, and nothing else. And if Israel, remember the context, freshly redeemed from slavery, if in their newfound freedom, even carrying the plunder of Egypt, you know, or even if Charlotte Chapel, living in the most consumeristic society ever, if we or they get this wrong, the reputation of God will de be diminished and the glory he designs to display through people like you and me will be dimmed. That's why we need to talk about coveting and contentment today. And I want to frame this sermon on those two words. Two points. Firstly, coveting. Loving your neighbor's stuff more than them. Now, when you read this 10th commandment, you can't miss that actually coveting is a heart condition. In many ways, it's different to the previous commandments. I mean, idol, idol making, Sabbath breaking, life taking, stuff stealing, and so on, are all sins that are carried out by kind of observable acts that someone could even point to and say, look, you've broken that commandment. But this one deals with hidden desire. All bar the first have to do with actions. This one has to do with the heart. But it's, but it's the root cause of each breach, isn't it? I mean, you don't steal 10 pound from someone without coveting that 10 pound first. No one ever sets out to sin against God and neighbor without first desiring something out of bounds in the heart. As the apostle James reminds us, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. That's James 1, 14 and 15. We see, we want, we take, or we act. Just like Eve, just like Achan in Joshua 7, just like David with Bathsheba, we're somewhere in between wanting and taking. That's where covetousness takes hold of all of us. In the hidden recesses of our hearts, what happens then is that in that moment, we are devaluing our neighbor when we care more for their stuff than for him or her. And when we value what he or she has more than who he or she is to the extent that we would be 
we would be selfishly content for that person not to have it, if only we could. And in the very same covetous longing, we de-God God. Because we take his throne and we act like we're the ones that everyone else should serve because actually I don't want them to have that stuff. I want that stuff and I want it. And I'm quite unhappy about the fact that I don't yet have it. What's up with this strange providence? And now we understand why the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3.15 calls covetousness idolatry. The tenth and the first commandment are very, very similar. That's why coveting is comprehensively forbidden in the 10th commandment. Look with me again at verse 17. God prohibits all coveting. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Do we ever find ourselves doing that? I'm not even talking about salivating over TV programs like Grand Designs or MTV Cribs or anything like that. I'm talking about the homes of fellow members that we go to for Sunday lunch. Oh, the layout, the space, the functionality. The paint must be faro and ball. The artwork, the feng shui. You ever find, no, you maybe don't say that last bit, but certainly we appreciate, don't we? But that's where desire can turn that appreciation very quickly into something sinful, covetous. That kind of covetousness ends up breeding a sinful discontent that focuses more on what your neighbor has, more than who, who your neighbor is. Someone can correct my grammar later. But it's not just your neighbor's stuff you're not to covet. Verse 17 continues, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Do we ever find ourselves coveting our neighbor's wife or husband? And again, I'm not mainly talking about desiring a picture-perfect woman or the chisel-chinned Diet Coke dudes used by advertisers to seduce us into buying stuff. It's just not reality. I'm talking mainly about the everyday interactions that we have with each other where appreciation of another person's spouse becomes attraction. And where that attraction becomes desire, desire becomes covetous. She is beautiful, he might think to himself. I think I'd get on really well with her. I wonder what would have happened if I'd married her instead of him. Her. <laughs> oh my word. I paused there, didn't I? I knew, I was like, something in my brain told me there's something not quite right with what I said there, anyway. Just to be clear, <laughs> goodness. Or you might say, I'm feeling really anxious now, he is so caring. You might say, he works hard for his family. He dates his wife. He's even good at DIY and fixes things without his wife having to ask him. I wish I was married to someone like him. Now that kind of covetousness is what's prohibited in the 10th commandment because it easily becomes an inordinate, an inappropriate longing that is so pernicious to marriage. It destroys it. But that's not all that's prohibited in this 10th commandment. Verse 17 continues, you shall not covet your neighbor's male or female servant, his ox or his donkey. Do we ever find ourselves doing that? 
Do you ever find yourself saying, man, I tell you what, that is a very fine mule that you've got there. Those hooves, wow. No, you don't say things like that. But we do jealously pursue someone's business, someone's career, what they've managed to achieve through their work. That's essentially what's envisaged in this section. What they've built up, coveting their success, their resources, what, what, what their career actually got them. Designer clothes, latest phone, sports car, exotic, exotic holidays, early retirement, all those kind of things. Now, none of those things are inherently bad if they are stewarded to God's glory. But coveting those things for sinful reasons is prohibited in the Ten Commandments. And just at the point where even the shiniest believer thinks we may have escaped the prohibitions, God says, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Their brains, their looks, their temperament, their life situation, their ambition, their trainers, their teeth, their hair, their tech, their role in church, their friendships, absolutely anything. By anything, God means, what does he mean? Anything, anything and everything. Anything that, if desired enough, might make us love our neighbor's stuff more than we love our neighbor and be either mildly or significantly bitter towards God for what he has not provided for us. That's the danger. So if we find ourselves looking into the mirror of God's law given through these Ten Commandments and see a sinner in the reflection, if we see someone who has broken the Tenth Commandment, what should we do? The answer to that really depends on whether or not you've already trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you don't believe in Jesus, the call when you see your sinful self in the reflection of God's mirror is to repent. The law is a kindness from God. Without it, we wouldn't be aware of the moral standards that God requires, but he's proclaimed it from the mountaintop. He's published it abroad, meaning that actually you can know super clearly whether or not you're a lawbreaker needing to turn from sin and ask him for mercy. And it shows every single one of us that we are. That is our desperate need. There is no one who looks at themselves in the reflection of the Ten Commandments and says, I'm doing okay. Everybody falls short of God's glorious standard. The good news is that when we turn from sin and ask him for mercy, is we find it. Because not only the revelation of himself through his law is a kindness from God, forgiveness is a kindness from God. God in love sent his son to be the savior of the world, to make this forgiveness possible. And your options today, super, super clear. In John 3.16, we read, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish because of any breach of the 10th or any of the other commandments, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? It's dead simple. Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So you see, God's very open with you. Covetors are condemned, but repentant covetors who trust in Christ and believe in Him will not be. So how will you choose? 
remain condemned through unbelief or receive forgiveness through faith in Christ. It is as simple as that. Everybody you've heard singing around you this morning, all the members of this church who gather here week by week are people who say, I'm a commandment breaker. I'm a sinner who deserves condemnation. And I'm only here, and I'm only singing, and I'm only happy because Christ's grace and forgiveness is mine. So you choose. Choose wisely. But what about us, brothers and sisters, those who already believe? Uh, we Ultimately, we too should repent on an ongoing basis, turning from living like life does consist in the abundance of possessions. We should ask God for forgiveness for ways that such desire has impacted our lives. And it does. Like, don't, be, don't misunderstand even the impact that a personal sin that we think is hidden, like desire, like covetousness, doesn't have a wider impact on the fellowship. It does. Whether you're talking about in your growth group or in the church as a whole or wherever, it can, these kind of sins can create senses of guilt and shame. When we break commandments and we feel like we're sinners, one of the things that we do is we distance ourselves from other people because we think they can see right through us and we want to hide our shame. So we end up with light attendance, arm's length relationships and all other kinds of things. Even financial stinginess are all symptoms of the kind of lackluster love common to coveters. So we've got to watch out for that. We as believers need to seek his help to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So what should we do? What does living in a manner worthy of the gospel look like for people who are sorry about coveting and keen to live differently? Well, this is point two. Contentment. Contentment is the key to loving your neighbor well. And the best way to cultivate this is firstly to be content with what you have and secondly with whom you have. Be content with what you have. If coveting is a major issue for us and if contentment is rare, listen to this, it can be learned. As Philippians 4, 11 to 12 says, Paul writing from prison says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So contentment is learned through the everyday fluctuations in life in which God works for our sanctification. Contentment is a lesson that can be learned when you have a lot, especially when you realize that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, nor does having the latest, best, and priciest make you happy. But contentment is, according to the testimony of many, most often learned in the school of want, when we've got little or hardly even a thing. How is it possible to learn that lesson and be content in such circumstances? Well, verse 13 of Philippians 4 tells us, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It's not a coffee cup verse for people who are achieving championship glory. That's a verse for the struggler, for the person who's got hardly anything. 
He gives us strength to do all of this. Like living lives that pursue the opposite of covetousness. Uh, We read earlier from 1 Timothy 6, Paul compares the covetous person in that passage with a contented person. And in that passage, Paul regards the covetous pursuit of wealth as, he says it plain and simply, it's a trap that brings people into ruin and destruction. And then in verse 10, he says that living for that kind of gain is what causes people to wander from their faith and experience all kinds of griefs that Paul says are essentially self-inflicted. They, they have pierced themselves with these desires, in other words. But Paul warns Timothy and us in verse 11 that you, man of God, flee from all of this. Run for your life and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Why? Well, he's already said why in verses 6 and 7. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have, now think about how basic these two items are. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now that's radical, isn't it? Though not hard to understand. Like rather than craving something else that someone else has, Be satisfied with what God in his good providence has designed to give you. Like God knows what we don't have. He's also got the power to do something about it. And if we needed something to be utterly different in order to glorify him more, we can be confident that he would provide it. If we were supposed to be in a different situation in life, we'd be in it. But knowing that what we have is exactly what he wants for us in the here and now, the call is to be content. And contentment is what makes you a great blessing and not a curse to your neighbor. Perhaps if we're having a hard time being content, we could make a couple of lists. Firstly, List everything you have that you don't deserve. And secondly, in another list, list everything you deserve that you don't have. And those lists will serve to be, they're like an alarm clock, or even better, a fire alarm, waking you up not just to reality, but to the danger of the daydream that we're miserably chasing. For if we really think that having material wealth, financial security, and a great retirement and prospect is the stuff of dreams, just go back and read what Jesus said to the man who thinks that life does consist in the abundance of possessions and gain some biblical perspective. See the life that that man coveted, taken from him, making the life he lived 
building bigger barns, developing his business. Oh, soon I'm going to have time for a great retirement and so on. See it all taken away in such a way that made the life that he had lived up to that point of his death nothing more than trivial. Trivial. Meaningless. In the end, God called him a fool. Which tells us that coveting the life that he pursued, which is what many of us do, including me, is utterly foolish in itself. So let's encourage each other to desire something better and to store up treasures in heaven. And the key, of course, isn't just being content with what we have. The key, according to the writer of the Hebrews, is to be content with whom you have. What does it say? Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. See what that's saying? See what God is driving home for us? It says the ultimate antidote to covetousness is contentment. Not just in what God provides, but in God himself. Keep yourselves from covetousness. Be content. You've got me. I'm with you. I'm never going away. And if you have got me, you, my friends, have enough. Now, I think the power of that is seen most clearly when you remember who he's saying it to. Who is being addressed in this letter to the Hebrews? Not just everyday Joes like us trying to live Christian lives in a materialistic world, but to Christians in the first century who were being disowned by their families, fired from their jobs, cut off from regular forms of provision and societal protection. He is saying to people this, to people who hardly had a thing. As Hebrews 10.34 says, some of these people had joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property because they knew that they themselves had better and lasting possessions. Faith in this promise, faith in the reality of the fact that God is with us and never will he leave us nor forsake us is powerful in this fight against covetousness. And if they could be content with what little they had, surely we can learn to be content with the plenty that we have. And we do. Friends, let us not be those whose hearts yearn selfishly for what we might have one day, but cultivate happy contentment in what God has given us today. His perfect provision in all the things that we have, the bounty of it, but above all, in him and the salvation we have according to his grace and his mercy. We have everything, everything in Christ. That's why whatever our circumstances, we can sing what we'll sing in a moment. Come rejoice now, O my soul. For his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. And mine are keys to Zion's city. Where beside the king I'll walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. 
Christ is mine forevermore. Amen? Let's pray together. Again, please do take the next few moments in the quietness just to pray your own prayers of response. It might be those prayers of repentance. It might be prayers asking God to make him more precious in your sight so that your love for him grows and your appreciation of his provision too. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. It is really so kind of you to reveal who you are to us through it and also your moral standards. When we see in this mirror of the law, we see our sin and are grateful for your forgiveness. For we see ourselves as sinners. But thank you that we cannot gaze long without remembering or even seeing that reflection conform and change so that in that mirror of your word we no longer see ourselves as sinners but we see Christ our righteousness and we praise you that in him we have everything we have forgiveness in this life and oh, more than just hope for the next what can we do but respond in praise and thanksgiving, singing joyfully at the top of our voices with hearts bursting with praise and thanksgiving to you. Help us not only to praise you in these moments, but to live in a manner worthy of the gospel beyond them. For the sake of our life together as a church family, for the sake of our testimony to those who don't know you, and above all, for the sake of the glory of the name of Jesus Christ, whom you sent, whom we love, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Mm -hmm.